Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dual Access Podcast. My name is Andy Kriebel, and today I have a very special guest, Jack Schuster from Gemini Sports. And Jack and I are going to talk today about how AI is used in sports, how he got his career going with this, and how it's being used. And also, since it's a new business, I'm going to ask him about running a business because I don't really know what I'm doing. So, Jack, welcome. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be here. <laughs> uh, yeah, why don't we start with a bit about your background? Eva was telling me that you started with you were working on your PhD in New Zealand. Is that right? And then basically yes. it got cut. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so tell me a bit about that. What were you studying? Well, I was studying biomechanics. Um, so my okay. my dissertation was on force velocity and power profiling of overground sprinting, which is a really complicated way of saying putting a radar gun behind someone while they do a sprinting test, a speed yeah. test, <laughs> and then piecing apart that data to see, you know, are they better with initial force production or are they better at top-end velocity and how should that influence their weight room programming? So I was taking that data and then applying it in the gym uh, in strength and conditioning coaching. Um, I, I think there's no better representation of the ups and downs of working professional sports that I was working for arguably the best women's sports team on the planet in terms of dominance. Um, yeah. And yet I literally got kicked out of the country because our best player got a totally random occurrence red card in the gold medal match and we lost and my boss was fired, scholarship canceled, everything. And it was beautiful. It was okay. like, it was such an amazing lesson in life that just, you know, don't take anything for granted, which I certainly was at the time. Um, and, and on the adventure went. Yeah. Where, where'd you head after that? I went to work for USA Field Hockey. I was their performance director oh, and then moved on to Florida okay. State University with their track field, track and field, yeah. tennis and golf teams. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My, my sister played uh, field hockey at uh, Division One level. And she was- It's an uh, amazing sport. It flies under the yeah. radar in the States, but it's an amazing international sport. I got to do some pretty cool travel for that role. Um, my, my favorite memory from that was that we were in Trinidad and Tobago for a World Series event. And there was the Brazilian national team. So Neymar was in our hotel. And we had the field hockey World Series event, and there was West Indies versus Pakistan in cricket. And which of oh, the geez. three do you think was actually selling out the stadium and getting the cricket for sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that's interesting. Yeah, I, I know you have to be quite brutal to be able to play that sport. It's uh, it's very very physical. Yeah. Um, yes. There was a woman that was that's on my triathlon team, or well, when I was on that triathlon team, and her sister played for Team GP in uh, field hockey or what well, they, they call it hockey here, which always confuses me because I think yes. of ice hockey, but oh, yeah. very different sport. Yeah, I think about uh, the Bruins. Yeah. What's that? I think about the Bruins when I hear hockey. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the Bruins. Yeah, I'm a Flyers fan. I know. That's um, why I said so, that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although I haven't seen a hockey game in probably, I don't know, 12, 15 years, but it, it is by far, I think the best live spectator sport. Um, it's not very good. It's not very good uh, on TV. Oh, on TV. I think yeah. that's why it doesn't market as well is because it's awful on TV, but it is, I think it's also as a sports product, not an entertainment product. The NFL has that, but as a sport product, it's the healthiest in America. Like it's, it's the most robust, highest talent. The game is in the best shape in terms of how the rules yeah. are being related and the executives and the teams. Yeah. It's the best, best run sport in America right now. Yeah. Very low injury rates too, I believe. Right. That's right. Yeah. Long careers. I just, I, I think they are probably, when I think about, you know, basketball players, I think are better athletes than football players. Um, but I think hockey players go way beyond basketball players because they're, they're basically doing what a basketball player does, but on skates and they're getting smashed up against walls and they don't fall yeah. down. I just yeah, find it's unbelievably, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. The athletes they are. The skill element is pretty high too. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and the players have gotten bigger and bigger too. I remember when I was a kid, yeah. you know, you had Wayne Gretzky, that's when he was in his yeah. heyday yeah. and he was tiny. Yeah. Uh, and now yeah. all the players are huge. They're like linebackers in the NFL now playing yeah. on skates. <laughs> I think when you watch the game now, the speed of it all, the ice is too small. Almost. True. Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I need to get back to, uh, maybe next time I'm in Philly, if there's a Flyers game, I need to, uh, need to go see one, but every time I'm there, they're, they're not playing at home or it's the wrong season. So summer typically doesn't work very well for ice hockey. Um, so, uh, even though they do have ice hockey in the desert somehow, uh, <laughs> which is pretty cool, which is pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, uh, qu quite strange. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you went from your PhD to working with the, uh, us field hockey, What's next? How did, how did you end up getting into what you're doing now with Gemini? So uh, the, the idea, not to make a business, but the problem statement was certainly in my head from my time in New Zealand, where I had to learn MATLAB and Python to process that, that radar gun data. And I was really bad at both. And I thought like, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a computer science whiz, but I don't think I'm dumb. And this is right. too difficult. Like the barrier of entry was so high. Yeah. It's, it's easy to pass like, Intro, intro to Python and make some basic dashboards. But but then like to do anything serious was was way, it was too much of a learning curve. And and I yeah. said, there's gotta be some kind of citizen data science tool out there. There has to be some, some productivity platforms. If you just think about the concept of SaaS, right? Let's hand you something off the shelf so that you don't have to write all that code. It's, it doesn't mean don't write code for other things. It just means, you know, let's accelerate that. Yeah. So I thought that has to exist in sports and it, and it, it doesn't or it didn't. And, and so the idea like slowly grew in my head and 2019, I totally burned out, you know, sports, you're changing jobs and countries every two years and, and it doesn't really give you a chance to, to grow up. And, and, yeah. and it was time, you know, I was turning 30 and I said, I need to make a career change. Um, so I completely burned out. I moved back to the States. Um, I, I moved to Miami and, and I had a lot of really good entrepreneur friends around me. Um, mm -hmm. And, and so end of 2021, um, I said, it, it, it's time to turn this into something. And what gave you the courage to make that leap? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, surely, I you were, surely you were apprehensive about it, right? Like, is this well, going to fail? I, I think the fact that you hear that it took you know, three years after the problem existed and two years after I said, maybe I should make a business out of this. So, you know, it, it takes a minute. Right. And then, and then at least two years after that, before it became a viable business. Um, right, so right. I, I think it's, it's, it's less courage because the courage is really important, but it's the perseverance. It's a lot of people can have an exciting drive for two weeks or six months. Can you do it for five years? Um, yeah. and, and so like courage is extremely important, but, um, the endurance of that courage, I think, I think mm -hmm. is what matters more. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's a, it's a muscle. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were starting your business, um, when, at what point did you decide that you needed to start building out a team? I think, um, you know, we got our first venture capital funding in as a pre-seed in May of 2022. And okay. I pitched, you know, when we talk about that endurance, and I'm not here to, to glorify it because it was not fun. I pitched over 50 venture capitalists before I got a yes. Um, and so that was a lot of bad pitch decks, a lot of uh, floods, you know, pitch meetings, a lot of a lot of rejections, a lot of criticisms, a lot of holes poked, and I had to go close up. Um, a lot of a lot of people would look at our prototypes and say, "Oh, that's never going to work." Before groups said, "Hey, I think that will work," um, mm -hmm. and they're going to benefit from from that that you know vote of confidence. Obviously, um, 
So for me, I didn't really have a choice, Andy, because I'm a non-technical founder. I, my one skill is, is getting amazing people in a room to build the crazy ideas in my head. Mm -hmm. um, so I was very fortunate to have done a bunch of consulting with the Houston Astros. I mean, I had access to some of their engineers and they, they helped build our prototype. Um, so, so for me, I, I had to, to build a team um, and it was just about finding the, the financing to do it. Yeah. And what do you look for when you're looking for somebody to join your team? Because, you know, culture, if, yeah. if you bring it when you're really small, if you bring in one bad apple, it can kill the company. Absolutely. That's the case when you have three people. And it's still the case when we have 13 people now. And I'm sure it'll right. be the case through 50. Um, it's it's all about the personality, Andy, because skills, skills are commoditized now. Data skills are commoditized. Coding skills are commoditized. Um, even experience can be found because there's a lot of people that want to be part of a startup, especially one in sports. Yeah. Intrinsic motivation is number one. Um, grit is probably number two. Mm. Um, and I think anything else I could say would probably be traced back to one of those where mm. you have to be a self-starter. You have to, um, you know, have self-determination just as part of your DNA that you see a problem and you say, I'm going to go figure that out. You don't wait for anyone else. You, you, you don't you don't rely on anyone else. You go and you figure it out um, and, and grit just because things are going to not work. Things are going to break. You're going to get rejected. You know, things won't happen on the timeline you're planned for. And you just have to keep going. So if, if you have those two qualities, you will succeed at a startup. And if you don't, um, mm -hmm. it might be appealing to go in and get some equity or do something new and exciting. But it's probably not fit. Yeah. And how do you determine grit in an interview? Um, if I ever figure that out, I'll let you know. <laughs> I guess, I, I, is, I is, like is it about like, you know, experiences of, uh, I guess, it, you know, it's kind of about overcoming obstacles. When did you, when right. you fail? It, it, it's you it's behavioral interviewing, you know, ask for an example when something, you know, had unexpected obstacles and you found a way to overcome it. What did that yeah. look like? How did you solve for that? Talking through your thought process and that, those kind of things. And, People are so well trained and so good at interviewing now. It's really, really difficult. But that's the approach, yeah. I think. That that is certainly true. Yeah, I've, I've interviewed, I think, about two thousand people, and uh, it's really interesting to see the evolution over time because you know questions that you ask get leaked. Uh, so um, you know, one of the one of my favorite things to do in interviews is interrupt somebody while they're trying to explain something to you, and just totally throw them off because if they can handle themselves when they're interrupted then they're mm. probably going to be okay. Right. It's about, you know, what's their composure like? Uh, Cause you know, if you're, if you're meeting with a, with an investor or some, uh, you know, something like that, they're going to interrupt you with questions, Absolutely. but you're not going to yeah. be able to just go through a canned presentation right. and have them say, Oh yeah, great job. You know, right. well, here's the money. Yes. Uh, you know yes. um, so it's, I find that to be a very important thing to look for. So if somebody, if I could tell somebody is almost like over-prepared for an interview uh, yeah. you know, where, you know, they're going to give you exactly the answers they're supposed to give you. Then that's yeah. when I try to break up the interview and it always that's throws people off. Oh, I hope my staff doesn't hear this because I interrupt people plenty anyway. So this is a, this yeah. is a great idea. Um, <laughs> it's a really interesting point. And there's something to that because I think like it's far down the list, but the ability to be concise is really important because in yeah. startups, we're not, we're not management consultants. We're not, we're not paid by, you know, how many slides we can put together. We have to get to the point. People are running from yeah. meeting to meeting. There's a lot of context switching. You have to be very good at context switch, switching. So for me, the ability to speak directly to your point, make clear asks, set clear expectations, and then move on quickly, um, that's very important. Yeah. That probably becomes even bigger when you need to pitch to a, a potential investor, right? Because the, their time is probably even more limited than yours is, right? They're they're probably hearing pitch after pitch after pitch, almost like Shark Tank. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, and they won't they won't read what you sent them. Um, right. or if they did, they've probably misinterpreted it. And I say that with all the you know love in the world, like we have amazing VCs on our cap table, but most they don't have the time to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, or, or they just don't understand it, or they miss a detail, or probably your pitch deck has holes and they they miss a key point. Um, you know, right. we say over and over and over in ours that we're taking data that's already out there, the teams already have, and and allowing them to use it better. But inevitably, someone always asks, "Where does the data come from?" Right. <laughs> yeah. And then once you once you've kind of built out your team, well, I guess along the way from the very from the very beginning, how did you go about building a customer base? Right, because you're you're starting from nothing. How do you get your foot in the door? Find the right people to talk to, so the decision makers, and then ultimately get them to say yes. Yeah, unfortunately, I'll give the same answer to a few other ones. A lot of trial and error, and a lot of uh, rejection tolerance. Yeah, tolerance. <laughs> you know, I, I would say we're only just starting to figure it out, and I think. You know, you, you kind of gave some of the answers. It, it's about finding the right people to, to talk to and being really clear with yourself. There's a lot of cases that there's a shiny object syndrome and someone's being really friendly to you. And guess what? They're totally the wrong person and they don't have yeah. budget control or they're not willing to stick their neck out for original political reasons. And you're wasting your time. Um, yeah. There's also a lot of cases that there's an organization that it makes a lot of sense why you could work with them or there's a lot of money on the line. But they're not innovators. They're not early adopters. They're not. Again, right. I will go back to politics because I've sat in that chair a hundred times and I completely understand where they're at. But a lot of our organizations are not in a moment where they're prepared to take a leap of faith on a new right. product. Right. And we have to be so intellectually honest with our bandwidth here that we've got 13 people. Really, realistically, three of them are able to, to think about selling more than half of their time. And, and how can we be really thoughtful about how we spend that time? So if we're talking mm -hmm. to the wrong people or the wrong group, we have to move on. Yeah. I've found as I've been talking to customers and, and trying to sell what I'm doing into customers that people in the U.S. are uh, much, um, well, I guess they're, they're less risk averse and they're, they'll make decisions really quickly where in the U.K. it's almost like they wait six months to decide if they want to call you back. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a very slow, don't want to take any risks, want everybody else to do it first before you do. Do you see the same thing in what you're doing? Like, you know, U.S. Yeah. sports versus, you know, yeah. I don't know if it's the same way all the way across Europe or if it's just yeah. in the U.K. I would say that the, the newfound prevalence of private equity owned teams is changing that quite a lot. Um, you know, there's there's more aggressiveness towards innovation. But from a right. cultural personality standpoint, you hit the nail on the head. Um, what I find, though, and, and hopefully this is a more positive inverse of what I said before, is, is like early adopters are early adopters. And they, they come in all shapes, sizes, and colors, and, and you yeah. just have to find them. So, you know, what we would call like an alpha, just someone with the right mindset, someone who's design-centric and user experience-centric. They, when we find them, we'll do whatever it takes to get a deal done because we know that they're going to be amazing partners. Right. Um, whereas, you know, the opposite is, is sometimes yeah. true. Yeah. Have you had any any um, situations where you've had to tell a customer no that wanted to work with you? I think what, what we've had to do in a couple of cases when a, a prospect was dragging on that we had, we had to kind of end it for them. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking more about, you know, you you go through it and um, you realize, you know what? Yes, we could serve this customer, but they're just not a good fit for us kind of culturally. Yeah. Um, well, so, yeah, there's a there's a lot of baggage in sports tech of and I say this with all of the respect and appreciation for the, you know, the uncles who have come before us in sports tech. But 
is a lot of bad precedent and bad habits from, right. you know, perpetual free trials and discounts and, and, you know, consulting on top of SaaS and, and, and blurring the lines there where yeah. I think a lot of teams would just be happy to kind of keep, keep milking the procurement process. And, and there's, there's like, Sports doesn't really know what SaaS is. They they, they haven't had like right. an enterprise sales process in front of them before. So we we have to, I don't want to say teach them because they've got a lot to teach us, obviously, but we have to show them what a professionalized sales process can look like. And that's that's not easy. Like if it was easy, every tech company before me would have done it. Right, right. You mentioned a few minutes ago about, you know, the, the kind of shiny new object syndrome. And that leads me to thinking about, you know, you have you have an AI-based product. Um ChatGPT is the new shiny thing, right? It's been what about a, about a year ago, right? It, it just all of a sudden this thing was there, yeah. and every company is like, "Oh, we do AI," and it's like, you know, well, bullcrap. No, you don't. You're just saying it because you have to, yeah. because the executive that you're trying to sell to thinks it's something he needs yeah. or she needs, yeah. um, and um, you know, so, so you have to say that you have it, but very few companies actually do or do it well. Um, what kind of sets? Well, I guess first off, before you get into that. Why don't you tell me a bit more about what Gemini does from an analytics perspective? So we're the co-pilot for front office decision-making. We allow okay. executives and sports teams to make better decisions faster and easier around roster management tactics and player performance by handing them a set of self-service data tools. Okay. What I find happens a lot is, is like, we've got this amazing, not love hate, but it's a paradox with chat GPT, right? So, for me, like my, my, my vision, my mission is to make it easier for non-technical folks, for executives, for decision yeah. makers to make data-driven decisions. And ChatGPT has brought that to the forefront. People who are not data scientists can type something into a chat window and get answers. It's, it's a miracle, right? It's sufficiently advanced yeah. technology should appear like magic. So that's fantastic. On the flip side, now everyone's expectations are way out of whack that they think, oh, can't can I just type type in, you know, which player should I draft and it'll pop up? No, that's yeah. that's years away from from being realistic. Yeah. Maybe well, we it have to have the data in the first place. You know, it can that's only exactly right, Andy. And, and so, you know, we've got a feature that's that's in development right now that, that'll be out in a few months that you can type in, hey, of this data set, how many of these wide receivers make between two and five million of that group, right. which one's the most undervalued? And that'll be awesome. But that's yeah. four clicks away from which player should I draft? Yeah. And, and so I think there, there's this paradox, right? That we're we're all so excited to, to have every citizen become a prompt engineer, but do we have realistic realistic expectations of what technology can and cannot do? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people fail to understand that when you, when you do type a question in like that, you know, uh, which wide receiver should I draft? There's no there's no context for that question. Like, well, it depends. What is important yeah. to you? Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's where the the kind of next next step feels feels like it goes in. So so tell me a bit more about about the product itself. So you know it helps with like talent identification, um, mm -hmm. tactics, player health, player performance. You mentioned drafts. You know, getting all that information. So when when you say it's it's kind of like for the everyday person or you know the the um, no code analytics. What does how does the user actually use it? So mm -hmm. that they can actually get kind of this. This is really deep analysis. Yeah. Uh, but you're trying to make it easy for people. So how do you go about that balance? Yeah. So this is a narrative that's 15 years old in, in Fortune 500 industries, but in sports, there's there's a gold mine of data that's that's not being yeah. utilized fully. Teams have taken incredible strides in the 20 years since Moneyball took place, but they're still just scratching the surface and and they are overwhelmed by optical tracking data and all these new sources that are coming in and and you know. 
You used to be able to fit a season's worth of data on your laptop, and now it's about three days. And so, so teams, especially again, I keep coming back to private equity owning more teams. That they're, they're they're just modernizing. They're being run like mm -hmm. Fortune 500 businesses all of yeah. a sudden yeah. weren't before. Yeah. And and those industries all have utilized platform plays for data, whether that's cloud, ETL, or machine learning. And so what we've done is we've taken the best technologies from all three of those worlds and and wrapped them into an application layer that is self-service. So I would say, you know, being being vulnerable, our product today is more aimed at the SQL power user analyst or scout that wants to do machine learning. Um, with a few features coming out that are more oriented towards my dream user, which is the assistant general manager who, you know, right. has a finance degree, knows his way around Excel, but, but couldn't, couldn't dream of, of some of the other, other pieces, um, right. but can be taught, you know, this is what, this is what ROC means. This is what F1 and recall means. Um, right. and, and, and so for us, we see that data out there and, and we say there shouldn't be 350 soccer teams around the world all building the same three pipelines. We should build those pipelines. We should maintain those data pipelines through partnerships with the sports data vendors like StatsBomb, like Skill Corner, like Infinite Athlete and Football. And then the data engineers, when they are hired by teams, they often aren't, can actually focus on driving business value rather than babysitting database architecture. Right, right. Now that, that makes complete sense. Which sport is the best at uh, using data? I hear cricket is pretty amazing at using data. Cricket for international sport, baseball is just still a country mile ahead of everyone else, which I think has tells been, you something, right? been, It's been the one that's been using data for the longest, right? I'm, that's know, right. That's right. It's really funny yeah. because like we have the internet, right? All of the information ever known to humanity is somewhere online for free. So mm -hmm. you'd think that that gap could be closed pretty quickly by a team that's determined to. But I feel comfortable saying that the most advanced staff in, in soccer, in hockey, in basketball, um, they are still behind the median team in baseball. And, yeah. and that's because it's cultural. That's because it's about systems. It's not about, it's not about adding a staff for this title. It's not about, you know, having, having a, a, a shiny app or a streamlit app that is touched around the organization, though that's a huge step. And that's something we integrate with. It's about the systems. It's about the, the people and the processes that are married up with technology. Yeah. I remember as a kid, you know, the first thing I would do when the newspaper came in the morning is look at box scores, right? So you're, and for baseball, right? Nobody looked at box scores for any other sport. Uh, you know, you might look at the summaries, but you never looked at kind of player by player and, and sort of, you know, you start making your own inferences about how players are performing and what are the trends for that player. And, you know, that, that's sort of, it's sort of built into baseball. You know, if you want to, if you want to follow baseball, you need to understand the stats of baseball. So it's, it's culturally built into yeah. to, to the sport. Yeah. Without question. It, it was well set up to be the first and, and, and the, the, the most prevalent. Um, but I think it's all about how determined you are um, where yeah. hockey is yeah. hockey is caught up faster than, than other sports. And that's, yeah. that's because yeah. of how they operate. Yeah, I think it's been to the, a bit of a bit of to the the detriment of baseball as well because now, well, before this year and they implemented the the rules for speeding the game up, there were so many pitching changes um, because it might be well you're good against this one batter so that's the only one you're going to pitch against and that's 15 minutes right right there yeah and yeah, uh, it yeah. became you know you don't see you you rarely see the pitcher now I guess Justin Verlander is probably the only one that's still out there that pitches complete games. Right. You know, they have these, these artificial pitch counts, which are just total BS. Yeah. Uh, you know, no pitcher can go beyond 80 pitches. Like, you know, when did that become a problem? 
Yeah. Um, you know, think back to the, the the days when the Braves were dominant and you had four starting pitchers that almost every game they pitched a complete game, or it seemed like yeah. it, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, do you think that will ever come back to baseball? I think we do we do see some of these full circle trends. Um, so so I think, you know, one of the things that, that makes me most excited that, that air quotes analytics has changed about sports is, is that tactics and strategies that were just unthinkable 10 years ago, they're now out there, whether it's pulling goalies at a different time in hockey, the shifts, um, you know, not, not scaling bases as much, things like that. And I think I'll use soccer as an example that there was a big era of kind of strikerless play that you didn't need this archetypal six foot five center forward that, that could, you know, take down headers and hold up playing all this stuff. And, and everyone wanted to follow the Pep Guardiola model and, and the, you know, the Jurgen Klopp model, just have your three best forwards play and they're all going to mix it up. And everyone was starting to follow that trend. And then Pep bought the best center forward in the game who did exactly yeah. that and almost nothing else. And, and then Liverpool they, went, and bought, went and bought one the same way. That's right. right. That's right. And City won yeah. the treble. City yeah. won the treble finally. And, and so I think we do see some of these trends go full circle that you think, well, if everyone's, you know, going left, do we go right? And, and I think, you know, there are things that will be eliminated strategically um, because they were they were kind of false idols. Um, but I think yeah. that there are other things that, you know, I saw someone criticize Sean McVay at the Rams uh, last year because he he was below average for how often he would go for it on fourth down. And then right. someone said, yeah, but if you look at 10 years ago, he would be by far the most aggressive. Right, right. It's all relative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I know um, I've uh, worked with quite a few people in, in where my old job that uh, actually work at City now. One of them heads up heads up uh, uh, stats for the whole organization. Another one heads up stats for, um, uh, I, th I believe it's just for Man City. Um, and uh, it's it's they're so far ahead of other, other clubs with how they do player identification. They always yeah, seem yeah. to sell players at the right time. They get like ridiculous amounts of money for players that nobody's ever heard of. Yep. So they're doing, they're doing something that other people aren't doing. That's, and yeah. you know, that along with having unlimited funds and uh, possibly skirting the rules, given the, the, um, the charges that yeah. are out there now, um, you still have to win on the field, but uh, yeah, on the field. yeah. So um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see some clubs just take it to another level and everybody else is playing catch up. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been super fascinating to follow along. Um, and you're seeing Newcastle come in with all this money now from uh, the Qataris. And uh, the you know, last year, last year they did a lot of, what's that? The Saudis. Saudis, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, you saw them put a lot of money into the stats part of, of, of things, right. And player yeah. identification and they improve, but this year they're not doing that as much. So they're kind yeah. of petering yeah. out. Right. Uh, so it's just, it's super fascinating to see these trends. If you, if you're paying attention to them, I guess, which, you know, me being a data person, I, I kind of look for that stuff, which is, which I'll, is really I'll one better. I mean, Arsenal quietly, right. They bought a stats company and they decided that they wanted to do yeah. everything in house. And it, it, it breaks my heart a little bit because it reduces the, the chances or, you know, lengthens the timeline before, my company might be a fit for them. Yeah but, yeah. but our favorite soccer team has done this so well because they said they, they got ahead of the curve, them, them and Liverpool. And then Arsenal yeah, said, yeah. we're gonna buy this this US based stats consulting company. And you know, shout out to Justin Arms and Sarah Rudd and, and everyone that was part of that. Um and and look at what they're doing now. Look at how their international scouting has gone. Um yeah. And, yeah. and bringing in a young, it's, it's, but remember, it's the people in the processes. So Adu Gaspar, one of the youngest executives in the game, 
who played in that generation where they first had GPS and force plates and he gets yeah. it. He yeah. knows that technology yeah. has to be a part of yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. Well, and, and they also have owners that, uh, that support it, right? You know, you've right. got some owners that would just rather sit on the money that they get from the Premier League and the Champions League and, and that's it, right? So they, um, yeah, I think the Cronkies get a, get a bad rep, but if they take a lot of their money from the other clubs and they shift it around for their whole portfolio, that's right. that's which right. is, uh, you know, they're investments for them. Um, yeah. But they treat them like investments, not toys. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's great. Um, so what else, like, what's your typical use case then for, um, for, for Gemini, you know, um, who, who's going to be the everyday user? You mentioned, you know, right now it's a bit, you know, SQL heavy, possibly, you know, it's not quite ready yet for the, at least I think that's what you said, it's not quite yet, quite ready yet for the executive to use it, for example. Um, so right now, who is kind of your target market? Yeah, so so you don't have to use SQL to use our application now. What I meant is, is oh, okay. that someone who is using SQL in their everyday before our product comes along is probably an ideal user for us because oh, okay. they understand okay. a lot of the flows and a lot of the kind of logic involved. Um, right. Our application is completely, you know, no code. Um, okay, programming right. free, yeah. But there's still a lot of screens that might scare off someone who hasn't played around in, in, in some of that. Um, okay. So, so let's say you're an assistant general manager that's got a finance degree and, and you know your way around spreadsheets and you're comfortable with that. Um, you know, the most common kind of one, two, three would be what's the playing style that I want to have that's identifiable and repeatable for my team. So maybe a clustering algorithm that looks at successful teams in your league and, and different playing styles there. And then looking at and, and, and locating players that you could acquire for your team that fit that playing style and, and, doing regressions or doing time series around how are they going to perform in my league? How are they going to perform on my team? How's their price point? Are they undervalued, therefore being a good purchase? Um, what's their value going to be in three years? What's their resell value going to be? And projecting from that, filtering and sorting your way into a list that makes sense to go out and acquire for your right. team. Okay. Why do some teams get it wrong when they use stats? You know, it seems like they picked the right person. They've gone through all the models. They've you know, every, all the data tells them it's the right person. And then the, the players flop. I think there are ways in which, you know, if a player is good enough for your environment, for your league, for your conference, whatever, um, that just have to be seen with a human eye. Um, and so mm -hmm. when that's, when that step is skipped, I think that's, that's one reason. And then the other is simply, um, personality, locker room, um, professionalism. I, I find when, when stats pick the wrong person, um, it's one of those two things, which is interesting because both of those come back to the, the, the people in the processes. So yeah. I, I don't know if stats pick the wrong person per se, but I think organizations lean too heavily in stats and don't include the other parts. Yeah. I guess it'd be like we talked about earlier, how you interview people, you want them to be a good cultural fit, but teams don't interview players. They negotiate with their agents. So is that, is that a, do you think teams will ever start doing that? Start interviewing players like, like in the NFL combine, for example, it's not, you know, it's just a show now basically, but they, you know, or, or whenever a player is going to be drafted, they'll interview that player first to make sure they're a good fit for the organization. Are they, you know, do they have the right character? Uh, do they yeah. know, you know what the coach is looking for? But you don't really see that in like soccer, for example, you don't really see that. You're starting to. You're starting to. I mean, I think the organizations that do it really well, you see it where, hey, it's not easy because it filters away your list quite a lot. Um, and I think the best teams back themselves to integrate a, a player that might have questionable right. professionalism into their into their culture. 
um, which is always a bet. It's a risk. But for example, you know, you've seen uh, Mikel Arteta and, and Edu speak about Tomiyasu and how they knew that he was such a hard worker and such a team player and, and, and led by example. And I think that that influenced that purchase. So, um, you know, I think they thought about you, you mentioned Trossard earlier that that they knew that that's a player that, that was a veteran. He was a longtime national team player. He could be a good part of that system. Jorginho is another one. Um, sometimes reputations precede themselves, but I, I think teams are starting to index yeah. for that. Yeah. And I guess, you know, something like moving countries is something you can't really account for, right? That's it's, right. Especially, it's you know, uh, it's to to, yeah, it's like yeah. players that move to the Premier League and they don't speak English. That has to be like, it's got to be really hard. It'd be no different than, you know, me going to, I don't know, uh, you know, somewhere in Eastern Europe and having to start a business there and not speak the language. You know? Correct. And, and I think that, that's such an important point is that like all the stats in the world can't pick which 19 year old in Brazil is going to adjust to living in London. Right. <laughs> Very few of them probably. Yeah, actually. Probably yeah. pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. Unless they live in like Sao Paulo or. or yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Or, it'll and, actually and feel quiet. Small town for them. Yeah. 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 Well, great. Yeah, Jake, thank, thanks very much. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you, with Gemini? Jake at GeminiSports.ai. And we are at GeminiSports.ai. Great. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate your time. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure.